Good morning, Garrison Bridge. Hope you guys are having a great morning. I know I am. I love every Sunday. But as I told someone just a moment ago, I especially love Baptism Sunday. It's one of my favorite Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> and give you a shameless plug. If this is your next step, or maybe you don't know Jesus, and our prayer is today that you would come to know Jesus, we have Baptism Sunday almost every single month, the second Sunday. So we have another one coming up in September. If you've never taken this step, would love to start that conversation with you today. I think we already have four or five lined up for next month. So uh, if that's your step, uh, make sure you take it, start the conversation today. Also want to make sure you're aware of uh, what we're calling Welcome Back Sunday, next Sunday. And what this is, is you say, well, why do I need welcoming back? I'm here already. That's, that's right. But there are others who are not here uh, that are clicking back in with school kicking in and vacations winding down. We identified this Sunday. We did the same thing last year. It's a Sunday where we really want to celebrate the start of a new semester. So our challenge, our encouragement for you, especially here at Harrison Bridge, is to bring someone with you. You say, Corey, the parking's already bad enough. I get it, right? We, we hopefully will have some more parking here soon. Uh, but bring them with you. We'll figure out the parking when they get here, right? We've got a big field out there. But we want to fill every seat in this room next week and to celebrate what God has done this summer, but also to look forward to what God is going to do this semester. Uh, we have a special uh, one-week message there coming out of the book of Hebrews that I'm really excited about. So next Sunday, welcome back Sunday. Bring somebody with you. All of our ministries are fired back up. We're at full go, full strength. So bring a family member, friend, co-worker, stranger, whoever it may be. Bring them with you next week and look forward to that Sunday with you. Today, we're closing out our series in the book of Daniel. And we're closing it out in Daniel chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, you can be flipping there. And really, we're asking this question as we close this series out. How should I pray in Babylon? That's, that's the big question. Really, most of Daniel chapter 9 is all about prayer. And what we do with prayer and how we pray. And we're going to unpack a lot of answers for those questions today in our time together. But I was thinking, you know, in terms of prayer, uh, especially about a decade ago, uh, I hated praying. Uh, not hate praying. I should say it this way. I hated praying in front of people. Uh, I didn't like speaking in front of people. I, you're like, wow, you talk too much now, right? It really, it's flipped here for us. Uh, but here's the thing. Before I ever stepped into ministry, like my student pastor and even my college pastor, you know, they ask that question when you're in like a small group setting. You sit there and they say, who would like to pray for us? And pro tip for you, if you don't want to pray, you look straight down, right? You never make eye contact. If you make eye contact, you are praying. Or you can do the reverse psychology thing and stare at them and weird them out and they may not call on you then. I tried both of those practices there. But, you know, I started thinking of other prayers that I prayed along my journey with Jesus here. And some of them were like this. Dear God, uh, especially with school uh, clicking back in. Let me pass this test, right? This test that I probably have not studied for. That is a prayer, sorry students and kids in the room, that I don't think God answers very often. At least he didn't for me, all right? Uh, another prayer may be, dear God, please let my crush like me. It worked out for me, all right? I don't know about for y'all, but I did have to pray it a bunch of times, but it finally worked. Another one may be, dear God, please let my Gamecocks win. 
jury's still out on whether he answers that or not. <laughs> so, this year, this year he's going to answer it. Uh, but one of my favorite things in, in prayer time is that as Anna Grace has gotten older, she can understand a little more. She's four and a half. We have a, a prayer time at night. So we have this like little bedtime ritual. And so this weekend, I've got to do the whole bedtime ritual myself. Uh, Mel's been on a laser te- retreat back this morning, uh, so glad to have her back. Uh, but we've had a daddy-daughter weekend all weekend. And so at bedtime, it looks like this. We'll get the Bible, or a little kid's Bible. We'll read a story. Last night, we read the Tower of Babel. We're working our way through it. And then we read a book she picks out. And then we got to FaceTime like half the grandparents, right? For whatever reason, we got to fa- FaceTime the grandparents every single night. And so we FaceTime the grandparents. We get that out of the way. And then finally, like, I'll look. If Mel's there, I'll look. And I'm like, all right, who do you want to pray? You know, we're really trying to cultivate the practice of prayer with her, a teacher prayer. And sometimes I just get impatient, just to be completely honest. I'm like, all right, I'll pray. You're taking too long to choose here. But she said, no, 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 Dad. we got to play catch a tiger. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And the first night she said, I'm like, now I understand what it is. But she said, we got to do catch a tiger by his toe. And I'm like, so literally most nights we play any, mini mighty mo to determine who prays in the Watson household. And somehow or another, that mo, the last mo in that rhyme lands on her every single time. It's rigged. It's rigged. And she'll like start praying. She'll say, dear God. And she'll say, say, no, 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 no. Let me start over. And so we have like three or four false starts in prayer before we pray there. But one of the cool things about that time is that what I've really picked up on in her prayers, she prays just like her daddy. And so if you, you sometimes will hear me from the sage, I'll say, dear God, thank you for this day. She will literally say those words on almost every prayer at night that she prays. And one of the reasons I pray that is I never want to take for granted the day that the Lord is so graciously given. And I hear other moments in those prayers where I'm like, man, she's literally play, praying the exact words I am. And so it's impressed upon me, my need as a father to model prayer for her. And not only that, but the importance of prayer in my own life. And how even just outside of praying with my family, praying for my family individually is also, also important there. But also praying for others and, as we'll talk about today, praying for our Babylon that we're in. If you haven't been here, the book of Daniel takes place in the nation of Babylon. Though today that changes, we'll see another nation takes over Babylon, the nation of Persia, the Medes, if you will. Uh, the second beast we talked about last week. But for the large part of the book of Daniel, we're talking about Babylon and Daniel praying in Babylon in an unfavorable place, in a place that is very hostile to his belief. And we've correlated that with where we live today. We're not physically in a Babylon, but spiritually speaking, we are in Babylon. And so there's some correlation there with how we see Daniel's prayer today in 9, chapter 9, with how we should pray today as we answer the question, how should we pray in Babylon? The backdrop to this is that Daniel was in his 80s. Uh, He's nearing the end of his life from what history tells us. He won't live too much longer beyond this. What we also know, as we just mentioned, is that Babylon has been conquered. Persia is in, and we're sitting in the year 538 B.C. So hopefully you're there in Daniel chapter 9 by now. If not, the verses will be on the screen. Uh, We'll walk through the first 19 verses. We'll unpack them along the way, and then we'll have some points to take home here this morning. And so look with me, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And say, wait a second, Corey, we're supposed to be talking about prayer here. We'll get to his prayer in a second. 
But what we have to understand, what undergirds his prayer, what is the foundation of his prayer, is what he sees in, sees in the word of God. Now, now, here's what I think of. I'm like, Daniel, you're in your 80s, right? History tells us you're not far from going to see God. And so you literally, based off of the laurels of your past, based off of the accomplishments and accolades of you being a faithful man, you could just coast into the finish line if you wanted, right? The man's been in lion's dens. He spent seven decades in exile. He's earned his street cred, right? He can take Take it easy if he wants. Yet we find the opposite. Even in his 80s, this man is searching and studying scripture. He has the scripture of Jeremiah in front of him. He doesn't have necessarily our Bible today from Genesis to Revelation, but he does have the words of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And as he studies, he comes to the conclusion of a very important fact. That the time of exile is getting ready to draw to a close. That is, God has set forth the discipline of putting his people in exile for some 70 years. And that is why they went to Babylon. And at the end of 70 years, he would bring them back. Daniel comes upon this fact in the book of Jeremiah here. And so if you use Daniel's dating, which I tend to do, we're in year 68 or 69 of this 70-year discipline, if you will. And so he comes to the conclusion that, hey... We're getting ready to go back and see Jerusalem. Now, we know from history, Daniel will never see Jerusalem again. But if I'm Daniel in this moment, my prayer is not what we're about to see. But my prayer is simply this. Hey, God, let's go ahead and speed up this process and get me back to my comfort in my homeland I haven't seen for decades. But notice how he prays. Verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord... The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So Daniel, instead of hopping into the request of, hey, just get us back home, God. We're close to the 70 years. Just get us to that finish line. He actually takes the complete opposite route here. And he waits until the end to make his request, by the way. We'll see in a moment. But he turns his face to the Lord, studying scripture leads him to prayer, hence, like we should see here that scripture should undergird our prayer life, right? It's not to say, as we'll say a couple times today, it's not to say we can't ask for contemporary things and healing and God to move in my world here and now, but scripture should be the primary driver of how we pray to God. And this is what it's doing for Daniel. After studying scripture, he seeks God by prayer. He pleads for mercy. He fasts, that is, he denies himself food and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. That is, he is coming to God in a humble appearance. Not just appearance, but in spirit as well. He is coming to him in humility. And he prays to God. And notice, again, he doesn't jump to the request off the bat. But rather, he sits and he sits and adores who God is. You'll notice here, he calls out, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. A few things to note there. Number one. He uses the covenant name of God here. This is Yahweh. This is the personal name that God gave his people when they came out of Egypt there. And so this is mightily important to remember. So here are people that have been sitting in exile for some seven decades, almost seven decades. And Daniel is still calling to mind this same God who was the God in Jerusalem for them is the same God in Babylon for them. And so he's calling to mind this is the God of that covenant, his personal name being used. Secondly... He keeps his covenant. He keeps his word. It would have been very easy if you were sitting in Babylon or Persia at this time to say, okay, God, well, we've been here for 70 years. It's obvious you've forgotten about us. 
And honestly, that was a major question coming back from the exile. Does God still love us? Is God still for us? In fact, that's the whole reason why you see the books of First and Second Chronicles there. They tell you essentially the same thing that First and Second Kings does. First and Second Kings is written to a people going into exile. So it's a much more negative tone, right? But coming back from exile, the books of First and Second Chronicles are an encouragement that, hey, God is still for you. God still loves you. God still keeps his covenant. And so Daniel calls that to mind. And then lastly, we see here in this portion that focuses in on God, he has steadfast love. Your Bibles may say it as loving kindness. The Hebrew word for this love is hesed love. And what this means is it's God's covenant love. It's different from the worldly love that we know today. And in this way, to give you an illustration, it's a poor illustration, but it's an illustration. If I have a love for another human being in the world today, it often looks like this. I love you as much as you can contribute something to me and love me, right? That is, if we are shaking hands, right, I'll hold on as long as you are holding on. But as soon as you let go, guess what? In this world today, I'm going to let go because that's what we think love is. But love, as it's defined by God, his covenant love is this. He has told Israel and he has shown Israel and he shows us here today that his love is this. That even if we disobey him as his people, even if we go astray, even if we want to let go, his covenant love continuously holds on to us. And if you're a child of God today, that should be the most encouraging thing that you can hear. That looking at the Old Testament history of a people that were continuously disobedient, that's why they're in exile, God still loved them. And God still loves you even though he knows the worst thing about you. I don't know about you, but man, that is so encouraging in a world that is so discouraging here. And so Daniel is reminded of his steadfast love. First part of his prayer is centered upon God, but now it begins to take a different tone. We even read verse 5, and you notice a different tone there. As he started talking about the actions of the people, six different ways, if you divide up the commandments and rules at the end of verse 5, six different ways that he says and he shows the people have fallen short. In fact, that's not the only verse. We're getting ready to read verses 6 through 15. So hang on. It's going to be a large chunk of scripture here. But we're going to stop along the way and make some notes. But this is all about the sin of the people. And it's so key for us to understand. Verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. That's the exile he's talking about. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what he has, has been done against Jerusalem. That's the exile again mentioned. As it is written... 
In the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. If we were sitting in a courtroom and God was the judge and Daniel was the prosecutor and we were the defendants, and this was the case, the evidence he just gave, this is an open and shut case. There's no room for doubt here. There's no leeway where we can say, but God, what about this? But God, if this would have happened, but God, or, or maybe this, there's, there's none of that. It is clear from verses 5 through 15 that the people are guilty of sin. I mean, he said it numerous ways there. They have sinned. They have open shame. They have turned aside. They have done wickedly. And on and on and on. This passage is really just redundancy, right? But it's Daniel hammering home the point that the people are not enough to save themselves. They're left to their own devices. They get themselves into things like exile. They openly reject God even when God's word is being clear. Again, this is so crucial for us to get here. And here's why. We often look at maybe an exile or maybe a hard time in our lives. I'm not saying all hard times in our lives, but notice we'll often look at God and say, well, why did this happen? For the exile, it happened because the people were disobedient. God clearly laid out what was ahead of them if they disobeyed him. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the law. The first giving is in uh, Exodus into Leviticus there. And then you find Deuteronomy. It takes place on the plains of Moab. This is the edge of the promised land we hear about early on in the Old Testament. And so the people of God have been led on a 40-year trek out of Egypt. God has freed them, as Daniel notes, by his mighty hand. He has freed them and made them his own people. And he leads them over 40 years to the edge of the promised land. They're looking at the Jordan River. They're looking at the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that their parents have heard about for so long. And they're sitting there ready to enter the promised land. But the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving a series of speeches on the law. Why? Why, why is this important even for us here today? Because God wants to be crystal clear with what the expectations are for his people. And so, you read the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. God is clear to sum it up. He says, if you obey me, things will go well in the promised land. If you do not obey me, these curses will fall upon you. In fact, Daniel is referencing Deuteronomy 28 here. If you want to understand the rest of the Old Testament past the book of Deuteronomy, understand the book of Deuteronomy. Read the book of Deuteronomy. You say, well, why did God allow these things? It all points back to the law that Moses speaks on the plains of Moab there. And so the people should not be caught by surprise. God has been clear. Here are the expectations. Here's what you should do. But if not, here's what's going to fall on you. And it has happened. Daniel makes clear throughout this passage that God makes good on his word, both good and bad for us. God is a keeper of covenants. God is a keeper of his promises here. And what Daniel says is that the people have no leg to stand on. They are guilty without excuse. In fact, the end of our part of the passage we read says, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. One thing to note here is that Daniel is identifying with the people's sin. Right? It would have been real easy for Daniel to say, I'm 80 years old. I've lived here like y'all have, but I've been faithful and y'all haven't. Right? Would have been real easy. In fact, in the midst of that, Daniel says, even though we've been in exile, most of them haven't turned to you. 
So it would have been real easy for Daniel to say, hey, let's pray for their sins. But I don't really have to pray for my sins. But what we find, and we'll talk about in a moment, is the right understanding of sin understands that we're all sinners. And so Daniel, whether it's a very pronounced sin that everybody sees or an inward sin that nobody sees, we're all sinners. And so he identifies with the sin of the people. He says, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. And it leads him to his ask in verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and ear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your, for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so the ask here is not get us back to Jerusalem because we deserve it, God, but it's for you to act according to your name and what you have said, not because we deserve it, but because of who you are. Daniel owns that in the ask. He's not asking for comfort. He's not asking for God to fix everything immediately. He's simply saying, act according to your mercy, act according to the promises that you have given us here. This is the right way to petition God. Again, it's not that God doesn't care about my individual contemporary petitions and requests, right? He does. He wants to hear those. But primarily, God wants me to seek him out, to beseech him, if you will, to move in the ways that he has promised he would move. And so this leads us to the question we ask almost every week. What does this do for my prayer life? What does this do for you? How does it answer the question, how should I pray in Babylon? How does it inform those prayers in our modern-day Babylon? Well, three ways it should form and shape our prayers. Number one is this. Pray acknowledging who God is. Pray acknowledging who God is. You, this seems easy, right? Well, of course we should acknowledge God. We're praying to God. right? But how many times in my prayer life do I just skirt over that first part? Do I just say, okay, God, you're great, but let me get to what I'm really here for. I treat God far more like a genie in the bottle than the God who commands the universe, right? It's like, okay, God, you're great, and I, I'm going to need you here in a minute to fix this, but I'm going to pretend I'm God for the rest of the time. You see, when we rightly view God, when we rightly acknowledge who God is, that shapes the rest of our prayers, and it shapes the rest of our lives here. Daniel is clear that if anything is going to happen in this prayer, in terms of responding to this prayer, which God does answer this prayer, by the way, if anything is going to happen in this prayer, it's going to be because of God and who he is, not because of Daniel and some clever words that he uses here. It's so easy, though, sometimes to forget this of who God is. So how should we move in this point? How should we respond? Well, what we see gets Daniel through seven decades of suffering in Babylon, of seeing the lions then, of seeing horrible rulers, is focusing in on a God who is all-powerful, no matter who the king is. And so for us in our modern-day Babylon, it would do us well in our prayer lives if we would simply sit and adore God for who he is. 
rather than rushing to the petitions or rushing to tell God what's you know, biggest in my world and what I think he should do. What if our prayer lives for a moment just reflected who God is? I think if there's no other, other takeaway for you in here today, if you, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you spend a couple extra minutes in your prayer time today talking to God and thanking him for who he is. You say, well, what will that change, Corey? It will start to change your heart, and it will start to change how you live in Babylon. Because God reminds us he's the same God today as he was in Babylon. He's the same God who has made these promises, this same covenant to us that he makes good on every single time. Simply sitting in adoration during a prayer, simply adoring God, rearranges not only my prayer life, but how I see this modern-day Babylon. Focusing on God in our prayer changes how we see Babylon, changes how we live in Babylon. And it leads us to the second point. Not only do we pray acknowledging who God is, but we pray confessing who we are. If I'm just completely transparent with you, this is a section I like to skip over, right? I like talking about God. I like talking about what I need from God. But talking about who I am in light of who God is, that's a, that's a different story, right? I'm a, I'm a mama's boy, and my mama tells me I'm a good old boy, and, you know, she thinks the world of her son, so I'm good, right? Well, the picture I get is actually very different in Daniel 9, and we find that with a right understanding of God becomes a right, or causes a right understanding of ourselves. You know, it lends itself as well to Isaiah chapter 6, another prophet in the Old Testament. And Isaiah, as he receives this call in Isaiah 6, he's having this throne room vision. And he's looking up and he's seeing God in all his majesty. And he's seeing his robes fill this heavenly throne room. And angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah do? And here's a righteous man, another righteous man in the Old Testament, Isaiah. But what does he do? He falls on his face and he says these words, woe to me, a man of unclean lips. So here's a man who was not doing anything egregiously wrong. He was not an outright sinner, though he was a sinner, just like Daniel, just like you and me. He could have simply said, God, I'm not like those people. But what we find when I rightfully view God, I rightfully view my sin. And the only natural response is to confess our sin to God. Confession of sin to God should be a regular occurrence in our prayer lives. And I know it's uncomfortable, and I know we say, well, God doesn't know. Here's the thing. God knows every dark skeleton in your closet. God knows every sin you have committed and every sin you will commit. And the beautiful thing is he still loves you. And so what that should do for us as we confess sin to God, it's not us telling God something that he doesn't know, but it's us agreeing with God that it is not right, that our hearts need him to be fixed here. And so in our prayer lives, we pray confessing who we are because we know God is the only one who can fix it, who can intercede for us. And really, Daniel's prayer here points us to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Daniel, though he identified with the people's sin, he couldn't fix the people's sin. He couldn't cleanse the people's sin. He could identify with it, but he could not pay the price for their sin, your sin, or my sin. But Jesus in the garden, a, a night before he's about to be crucified, is sitting in the garden and he's praying. And he prays these words, Father, if this cup can pass through my hand, let it be so. And then he says, but not my will, but your will. You see, he knows what's up ahead. He knows that a bloody cross, a physical 
Suffering is awaiting him, but far more than that is spiritual suffering because he is going to take the full weight of the penalty of your sin and my sin on his shoulders and to pay it in full, to have the cup of wrath fully pulled out, poured out upon him. And yet he still leans into it. He sees our shortcomings. He sees how we fall short of the standard of God. And he intercedes for us. He stands in the gap for us. So we have hope. Because I, I look at these verses here in 5 through 15, and I cannot help but even say, even where I stand with Jesus say, my goodness, what a hopeless situation. My goodness, nothing can help me in my own strength. That, that's really, I think, the only conclusion you can draw about ourselves from these verses. That I can't do anything to fix myself. And so Jesus, though, is that one who steps into what we cannot fix. The perfect sinless son of God willingly taking the judgment for our sin so that you and I can have a way out of this debacle we've created in our own lives. And here's the ask. If you're a person sitting in here today who doesn't know Jesus, man, the invitation right here before we even get to the end is this, that you would turn to this Jesus. Because your state in life, no matter what mom or dad or grandma, grandma, co-workers or people around the area may tell you, no matter how good of a boy or a girl or man or woman you may be, according to this world, God says without Jesus you are a sinner condemned and that you have no hope in yourself. And I think if you're honest with yourself, if we're honest with ourselves, we know this to be true. But the Bible tells us that's not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. That this Jesus who was praying in the garden, this Jesus who would die on the cross and rise on the third from the grave, this Jesus offers life to you and a way out of those sins. And so the move for you, the invitation for you even now is to pray a prayer that Paul gives us the model for in Romans 10, 9, to believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouths that he is the Savior. And what Paul says, and you will be saved. And if that's you and you're praying that prayer right now, man, come find us afterwards. Man, we want to help you take that next step. We want to show you what it's like to live in freedom from this sin that we have heard about. And it's only through Jesus there. This view of sin gives us a right view of ourselves in light of God. It calls the Christian to a humble way of living, even in the midst of an evil nation. It moves us to dependency upon God. The third and final point we need to see here is that we pray recognizing why God acts. We've seen who God is, who we are. As we said, at the end of the prayer, Daniel gets to the ask then. As we said a couple times already as well, this is not that God ignores all of our petitions, right? For those who are struggling in our lives, for those who are sick in our lives, for those who need healing. God longs to answer those prayers. So let's be clear here. But as John Calvin says, nothing delights God more than to answer the prayers that he already said he would answer, to paraphrase that. That is, God has said what he would do in our world, in our modern-day Babylon. God has already promised us how he would move here now in 2023. And so what the Bible tells us is that we should petition and ask God to move in these ways. Not because God is somehow waiting for us, but he is inviting us into what he is doing here. We get to play a role in that. And so my prayer should reflect this. It should reflect far more of God's promises than me asking for Lamborghinis outside of my garage, right? It should reflect far more of God redeeming Babylon than taking me out of Babylon. 
You see, that's where a lot of us get tripped up, where I get tripped up. I often pray for God to change my circumstances rather than changing the people in my circumstances. God, if you can just take me out of this evil nation, this evil world, and put me in a place that is safe and secure, that would be an answered prayer. But that's not the prayers that we see that God has promised to answer. Right? There is coming a day when things will be set right. But here now in this Babylon we live in, our prayers should be do not take us out, or should, be, should not be to take us out of this world, but it should be, God, would you move in Babylon? God, would you change our lives? Would you mend the broken marriages? Would you mend the broken relationships? Would you fix the homes that are crumbling? Would you change our schools? Would you change the upstate of South Carolina? Because you have promised to do so. Those are prayers that God longs to answer. That he wants to answer. And so the question for the Christian in here is simply this. What is the focus of your prayer and my prayer? What are we focused on? My creature comforts? Or a God who has already told me how he wants to move in my Babylon? If we want to see the upstate reach, if we want to see the 1.4 million people here in the upstate come to know Jesus, and I do. If we want to see God's kingdom grow and lives change. Our prayer should reflect the model that we see in Daniel 9. A prayer that is centered on who God is, who we are, and asking him to move as he has promised us he would do. That is the prayer that changes Babylon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God who hears our prayers even as we've spent considerable time talking about how much we fall short. It's just a testimony, as Daniel said, to your mercy, to your grace, to your forgiveness. God, we are sinners with no hope outside of you. Yet you have moved in our lives. You have acted so that some of us in here could know you through Jesus. God, I pray for those who do not know you that today, this morning, would be the day that they see who you are. They see their own sin and they see that Jesus is the only answer. God, would you encourage them and give them the courage to take that step, to make that decision. God, for us in here who already know you, I pray that our prayers in this modern-day Babylon would reflect you and your promises far more than our creature comforts. God, that you would change the upstate by our prayers, that you would bring new people into this building, into all of our campuses and other churches, so that the 1.4 million would know the name of Jesus. And it's all because you are who you are, Lord. So, Jesus, we ask that you would move in these ways. In your name, amen.